Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, as you know, and we are on episode number 29. Today, we have the absolute pleasure to talk to Dr. Angela Voss. Dr. Voss was a professional musician before moving into the academic world. She completed a PhD on the astrological music therapy of the Renaissance Magus Marsilio Ficino and went on to develop two master's degree programs at the University of Kent and Christ Church in Canterbury. These programs on myth, cosmology, and the sacred were groundbreaking in their aim to bring esoteric wisdom to bear on transformative learning. In 2021, the master's program at Christ Church will end, but more online initiatives are being developed. Angela has written extensively about Renaissance music, magic, divination, astrology, esoteric traditions, and transformative learning, and has made two CDs recreating the music of Ficino and John Dowling. She can be contacted at imaginalcosmos at gmail.com, and you can find a pretty good chunk, if not all, of her work on academia.edu. We had a wonderful conversation, and we're sure that you're going to find some value in it. Before we jump into the episode, uh, we'd like to highlight, as we have been doing, people in the community who deserve exposure. Today we are going to highlight Mr. Travis Lawrence, who is a listener of the show, actually. Travis makes some really cool hand-carved, hand-painted woodblock prints, and he's going to be highlighted at the Hoffman Lachance Contemporary Gallery at the end of July 2020 in St. Louis, Missouri. So if anyone is in the area, please check that out. I'm going to read this blurb from Travis's website. Influenced by Jungian psychology and mythology, Travis Lawrence uses the art of printmaking to create illustrious allegorical imagery. Reinterpreting medieval alchemical manuscripts and illuminations, each symbolic print appears to be an excerpt of narration filled with mystery and metaphor. The viewer is invited to explore the content of these hand-painted prints through a contemplative interaction with the represented archetypes. So Travis's work is actually pretty pertinent to the conversation we have with Dr. Voss. We talk about the power of symbols. So this was a, a nice matchup for this episode. Again, if you're interested, check out his website. We highly recommend you, you take a look. Um, the website is so infinity-prints.com. And his show is called Synthemata, New Woodblocks from Travis Lawrence. Again, at the Hoffman Lachance Contemporary Gallery in St. Louis, Missouri, July 24th through August 22nd. 2020 opening reception July 24th 6 to 10 p.m limited access and masks required and as always we want to say thank you to our patrons you really do keep the show afloat and keep the lights on here so uh, we appreciate your support very much if you're interested in supporting the show just go to patreon and do what you can do we dedicate this episode to Hermes and Asclepius May any merits accumulated doing this work be extended to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening.
Okay, we are extremely pleased and excited to have Dr. Angela Voss on the show today. Um, we've been looking forward to this for a while. We're very interested in your work, and we're happy to have you. Thank you for agreeing to come on. Well, thank you. It's, it's great to be here. Honored to have you. Yep, and we've got Janice here. We're fortunate enough to have him. Welcome, Janice, as always. Greetings to all the rogues and miscreants. Okay, so Angela, we, like I said, are very interested in your work. It's fascinating. It's, I think, much needed in this, in this world today. Um, I think it would be of great benefit to our listeners to uh, be introduced to it if they're not already familiar. So I think since we have such a, a large amount of information on our plate that we wanted to cover, I think maybe we should just kick right into it. Um, so the main thrust of, I think, our conversation is going to be around the imaginal and the imagination um, and how it relates to esoteric practice and study. And that's been a huge part of your work. Um, maybe we should start with just defining some terms. Um, what is the imaginal, the creative imagination? Okay. Um, well, perhaps I should just sort of start by saying that my background is in music. And so um, my work as an academic has kind of developed from um, being passionate about the arts and I guess moving into the question of the imaginal and the imagination comes from the fact that, you know, from a teenager, I felt that music transported me somewhere. And I used to, you know, when I was a teenager, I used to sit for hours and hours and hours listening to Renaissance music uh, because I felt that there was something, there was something in the power of, of this particular period that, held a quality of transcendence of, of some kind. At that age, I didn't really know what that, that meant. So that's what sort of started me off. Um, and then in my 20s, when I discovered um, Renaissance philosophy, more about Renaissance culture and the arts, and I began to realise it's just deeply informed by the rediscovery of Platonism and Hermeticism and Neoplatonic texts. So that's what really led me into my passion for sort of esoteric philosophy. And I also studied astrology, which, of course, is a, a highly imaginal, imaginative discipline. I don't believe that it's a, a science at all. I believe that it's a, it's, it's a kind of part of the imagination, of the symbolic imagination. Um, and I just, I was kind of grabbed, in a way, by um, a 15th century philosopher called Marsilio Ficino, who worked with both music and astrology um, as a form of therapy, a form of, of a kind of alignment of the soul and the body with the higher powers, if you like, or the cosmic powers and the divine powers, and just became completely and utterly enraptured and fascinated. Um, I think because I kind of sensed that I wanted to understand, you know, the effect that um, particularly music had had on me and... I wanted to understand how the Renaissance artists and musicians were seeking to achieve some kind of um, altered state of consciousness, you might say, you know, through, through their work. And that's what led me to engage with how the imagination was understood in that period. And to understand that, I had to go back to how the imagination was understood by the inspirers of that period, so by the Neoplatonic 
philosophers mainly, and by the Hermetic texts. Um, uh, so that's really how I sort of started off. And um, I've always been a bridge builder, and I've always been someone who wants to try and find ways to unite conflicts, unite opposites. And I was drawn into the academic world, and I realized that most academic writing completely lacked imagination. You know, it seemed to, even if people were writing about um, topics to do with art or music or astrology or symbolism or whatever it may be, there was this sort of detachment in which the writer was just simply not involved in any way in, which, in what they were writing. And at the time when I was starting in the late 80s and the 90s, um, it was almost considered embarrassing to be writing about subjects such as astrology you know, from an insider point of view, or from, from, from a practitioner point of view. Um, so I've always just had this sort of sense that before I even discovered theories of the imagination or theories of the imaginal um, in, in which to frame everything, I've always had a sense that, no, I had to, I had to write differently. I had to try and find a way to, to find a synthesis between scholarship and the imagination for my own kind of benefit, but also for also to heal a kind of split that was happening in the academic world, if that makes sense. It does. And that's what I found so refreshing about reading your papers. And one in particular uh, relates exactly to what you're talking about now is the uh, methodology of the the imagination, which is something you wrote. And it speaks directly to um, integrating that imaginal, uh, those imaginal faculties with um, assessing academic papers, writing academic papers, and like you said, bridging that gap. And it's interesting that you said you feel like a bridge because um, the imaginal is is also a bridge between our, you know, the material realm and the spirit realm. So, and I, I think uh, maybe at this point, I would hope that at least the majority of our listeners are familiar with the distinction between the um, imagination and the imaginal, but uh, do you think you could give a brief definition of that, Angela, for those that don't? Mm. Yes. Well, um, I guess one of the best people to read on this is is Henry Corbin, um, who writes from the a Neoplatonic position, but very much coming through sort of Islamic mysticism, where he and he describes the difference between um, the sort of fantasy and and what's called called true imagination. Um, And that goes back to Plato and his allegory of the cave, if if, if people kind of know that story, you know, that um, Plato describes that most of humanity, like people sitting in a cave, chained, chained to their seats, looking at the back wall, and all they see are images projected onto the back wall. And uh, these are just representations of, of other images, and there's nothing... There's nothing more than just opinion and fantasy and what these people are kind of making up. But somebody who can turn around and go out of the cave, they actually see reality for what it is. And eventually they see the sun and they realize that the sun is the image of something even greater, which then is is the divine principle or the one. And then they can go back into the cave and represent that if they're an artist or poet, the people in the cave. So there's a huge difference between the sort of fantasies that are going on with the people in the cave who cannot see 
outside at all and are just bound up with their own um, kind of inventions and opinions about things. And somebody who's had some kind of revelation, some kind of divine revelation through, um, you might say, sort of entering into a higher state of consciousness, what Plato would call a sort of noetic state of consciousness. And they've had a kind of Gnostic experience of seeing a truth about reality. And if the artist has seen this, um, then they can actually represent it through their art in a very, very different way from the artist who hasn't seen this. So this gives rise to the idea that there are two kinds of art, you know, one which can keep people just trapped in the cave and the other, the other kind of art which can actually lead somebody out into a sort of higher consciousness. But Plato doesn't actually use the word imagination at this point. You know, what his, his revelation is, is very much termed um, an intuitive intellect, you know, an imagination to Plato is still really what the people in the cave are doing. It's only when we get to um, philosophers like Plotinus, Sinesius, Iamblichus, you know, the Neoplatonists, who are taking Plato's work forward, but in a quite different way, where we start getting um, the word imagination used as, or the higher imagination used as the faculty that can really mediate between us lot in the cave and the divine mind. So for Plotinus, you know, we have two imaginations. We have a lower imagination, which is our sort of normal, normal day sort of fantasies. And then we have this higher faculty that the, sort of the, the artistic genius has. I think Plotinus says at one point, you know, that the great sculptor Phidias um, could represent the god Phidias because he knew how the god would represent himself to humans if he was in the sculpted form you know he had that kind of divine insight um so that's really the difference between what is understood in this tradition as true imagination like blake's you know divine imagination that can see through appearances to something greater and the pure fantasy type of thing that goes on with most people most of the time so that's the qualitative difference between um fantasy and imagination and Henry Corbin would call this middle ground of the imagination which has access to the spiritual world and can represent it to the sensual world the imaginal the imaginal realm as a sort of intermediary place and it almost seems as though this is an implicitly hermetic function because of the capacity to um unite dualities and um, bring harmony uh, between disparate modes of being and consciousness. And and, uh, I know in your writing, you have touched on the daimonic uh, character of this imaginal realm, and you've discussed the uh, function of daimons as sort of inhabitants of this imaginal space. Um, Do you care to talk a little bit about the daimonic Role. Mm. Well, um, that's another aspect of some Neoplatonism, really, um, particularly kind of theurgic Neoplatonism, which is concerned with ritual practice. Um, that the whole world is full of intelligence, um, and that the you know when humans are created, the that the human soul and the world soul. Um, are 
how can you say they're kind of personif- personified in, in different ways and different kinds of intelligence so there are there are sort of intelligences in nature in the cosmos and higher the higher ones of course which are the gods so the whole spectrum of creation is a kind of um uh, well, I think you know, it's, it's like the world soul sows these kind of what are called like baits or lures, and they, these can be seen as kind of um, the hidden secret occult living properties of the world. But they can also be seen as the daimones or the daimons, or they can just be seen as like life and, and the kind of animated principle of the world. You know, they can be seen in so many different ways, but certainly in, in kind of ritual magic. Um, procedures the daimons are the helpers they're the they're the, the kind of um emissaries of the, the gods if you like who you you call upon in order to assimilate yourself up to the sort of higher echelons of the gods um so yes and the imagination itself was seen as a daimonic as a living sort of daimonic force um other daimons might be, for example, Eros, you know, the power of Eros as a kind of spiritual force that propels you along um, into, into this sort of altered state of consciousness. I think Plato calls him the mightiest daimon because he unites heaven and earth in that way. The daimon magnus. So they're, very, they're mysterious creatures, really, the daimons. They're, they're sort of part, they're, they're partly us, but they're partly not us. You know, they're partly partly seem to be part of our sort of soul or our higher soul or we might be able to see them or hear them or have kind of visions but at the same time they can they can appear to be quite exterior to us so they're both they're liminal liminal creatures yeah i was gonna i was gonna ask you about that specifically because uh the nature of the daimon is changes depending on who's talking about them like like you mentioned with socrates seems to have been external and internal for him. I believe Plutarch, it seemed a little bit more like they were external. Yes. So it does change, and it can be confusing for people who are maybe investigating the daimones. And then you have angels, which come in in a similar fashion for like Ibn Arabi and the Islamic mystics. But you also have angels with Iamblichus, a little bit of a different role they're higher up on the hierarchy so maybe can you flesh out your perspective on where the diamonds fit and the angels fit if that makes sense well you know i think it's i think the problem is that it's very difficult to um rationally analyze something that is ineffable and beyond you know kind of categorization let's okay. say it's it, these things are experienced by people in so many different ways. And I'm, I really, I'm really fond of the work of Jeffrey Kripal. Um, I don't know if you've come across him, who writes a lot about um, comparative sort of religious traditions and, and, and contexts. But he, he talks about how, you know, this mysterious other, whatever it is, this, this other that people encounter in so many different religious traditions and practices you know, can be clothed in so many different ways according to according to the culture, according to the historical time, according to the the context. So these creatures called daimones, you know, I mean, are they angels? Are they um, 
Are they sort of nature spirits? Are they who are they in service to? You know, all there's so many different theories in, in so many different traditions. I think all you can sort of say is that um, there's a huge amount of effort put in to to categorise them. I mean, Iamblichus, you know, goes through so many different levels of being, from archons to angels, and um, that there's somehow an idea that the human soul is, is sort of at the bottom of this hierarchy, and as it as it sort of develops, it progresses sort of through the hierarchy of of of, of um, immaterial beings till it eventually becomes one with the divine being itself. Um, and of course, in the tradition, in the Christian tradition, it's the, the angels who who take on that sort of highest function. But it ultimately, you know, this is a great mystery. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great mystery, and all these attempts to give names to these beings, I think, are just they're, they're just different. Well, Kripal would say that they're like many different stained glass windows, you know, that are letting in the light, and each stained glass window is going to be different according to different different cultures and and and, and so on so um i don't think we can define them i think we can just say that a lot of people have a very strong sense of this other presence and that a lot of philosophers have tried to give taxonomies for them and have tried to arrange them in hierarchies um because they like sort of structures but ultimately, you know, it's an experience of a, a numinous other. And whether it appears as a voice or a vision in a dream or as an embodied being even, you know, there are sort of multiple ways these, these um, others can appear. And, well, what are they? I, I wouldn't like to... Um, I wouldn't like to be able to say I just I just find it completely fascinating that um, they are there and that have been perceived by people of all times and all ages. Thank you. I think that's a good answer you know, because yeah, who can who can really say precisely? I guess it depends on your paradigm really that you subscribe to. Sorry, Janice. You know, something something that's okay. Something that um, I find intriguing is the idea of the daimonic, you started off here with, as a, w- the idea of the daimonic in art, um, the idea that a piece of art, and Blake very much embodies this, as I, I think the fin de siècle symbolist painters like Peladon and such, well, Peladon wasn't a painter, but you know, the painters that surrounded Peladon, um, there have been artists who have deliberately sought to embody this sort of daimonic intelligence in art and i think that that's an intriguing concept because then you have a piece of art that lives even if we're talking about austin osmond spare i mean you have this art that has this consciousness this life of its own this genuine intelligence whether it's music even the music of the spheres which you definitely see in the renaissance music um you know or or symbolist art or something else there is this idea that you can find as almost a hidden thread in the arts of the infusion of something divine within them a sort of consciousness or intelligence and i i find that inspiring and intriguing i think my first exposure to the idea was in this story the the daemon lover um which 
I actually heard on record for the first time years ago. And the story itself seemed to come alive because of the subject matter. And that's when it first got my wheels, you know, turning about this idea of ensouled, the ensouled artwork. And then there's this demiurgic capacity in the creation of art in general, because it's sort of ex nihilo, you know, there, it wasn't there before. And then all of a sudden there is this production of, of uh, there's this work of creation. And I think that, that, that there's, there's, there is this demonic capacity in that, Definitely, definitely. In fact, I'm just writing at the moment about Botticelli's Primavera and um, thinking about how all these ideas are embodied in, um, particularly in his sort of pagan paintings, you know, exactly from this period, the 1470s, 1480s, where everything became alive, all the Neoplatonic ideas became so alive. Um, and thinking how you know, behind great paintings like that, there is such a deep level of kind of, um, what you might say, like a deepening of imagination where you can just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. And what I love about Neoplatonism is that it, it kind of opens that treasure chest, you know, it kind of, once you move into this question of um, that the imagination can lead you, the viewer, you know, that, that there's something about the painting which is designed deliberately to allow your imagination to engage in this way. Therefore, you can be led deeper and deeper and deeper, or not. You know, you can just simply see the surface image and think how pretty, or you can start thinking, well, what's this really symbolising and moving with it? And then you, know, you find yourself really being very, very changed. And I think... Um, the Renaissance Platonists, you know, were definitely influencing Botticelli in that particular painting. And that leads me to the uh, thing you mentioned before um, regarding the piece I wrote called The Methodology of Imagination, where what we found very, very helpful in helping students move in this way is using the medieval idea of the four senses of interpretation. So there's actually um, a... It was a Jewish and a Christian method of interpreting sacred texts, which was also taken up by Dante and then in the Renaissance period in, in relation to images, where you move from a very literal interpretation of the image or text to an allegorical interpretation where you're simply looking at the story or you're looking at what image stands for what thing. But then you move to what was called a moral or a tropological sense where suddenly you are implicated in that story or in that image. Your life is part of it or your experiences are part of it or you can relate on a very heartfelt, emotional level to the story and you, you're, you participate in it and you're really involved in it and you move with it and you travel with it. And in terms of Christian scripture you this would eventually lead you to um a kind of um mystical union in terms of neoplatonic theories and proclus talks quite a lot about this in terms of moving with the image in this way it would lead you to become the god a god or divinized it would actually lead you eventually to become at one with the god so 
that fourfold structure actually kind of gives the viewer or the reader a way in to uh, a, a kind of um, yeah a structured way into into looking at a painting and having this turn in the middle you know which is called the topological turn where suddenly you're not just on the outside thinking oh yes that's interesting that's an allegory of love or that's an allegory of war you suddenly realize that you have had this experience or that it's implicating you in your life and that's quite a kind of awesome moment you know and i think that's when the sort of the diamond speaks if you like that's when you, you're caught you're caught in it in it and the diamonds caught you and there's a magic which opens up and you just have to enter into it and you'll find very few art historians you know doing that um and that's how i think images can work with us but we have to be prepared to take that topological turn again that's what i love about your work is that you're trying to make this more available um, and maybe normalize it a little bit. <clears throat> and uh, I, I do love the imaginal, the idea of the imaginal as an, uh, a sense, an, an organ of, of perception, like an extra organ of perception. So we've got vision, smell, and then the imagination would be an organ of perception to see uh, the spiritual, the, the, the luminous, um, and when we're talking about these tokens and symbols and being able to engage with them in an experiential way, um, this speaks to me uh, of the difference between knowing and knowing. So uh, real gnosis would be that experiential um, diving in and and really getting your, your rolling up your sleeves and, and getting your uh, hands dirty with the material. And, uh, I wonder, since you have this this strong background in astrology, um, I I couldn't help but think of the Picatrix and the very heavy reliance on images that this certain uh, branch of mysticism and magic uh, has. And there are so many images that seem quite peculiar and and strange to people. Um, and maybe I was wondering if you can maybe for the listeners in a, in a practical sense, maybe explain how to engage. I mean, you, you, you kind of just did, but how to engage with some of these images, for instance, the, the faces of the signs there, they, they do come across as very bizarre. And I'm just curious if you have any advice for how to engage with these. I, I can, I'll, I'll read one. I'll just pick one randomly. And, uh, okay. Okay. So the second face of Pisces, a man upside down with his head below and his feet raised up, and his hand in his hand there's a tray from which the food has been eaten. This is the face of great reward and strong and of strong will in things that are high, serious, and thoughtful. This is the form. So I think people without this background in the Islamic uh, imaginary world may be confused by these images and, and may be disturbed by some of them. What are your thoughts on engaging with these? Yeah. Well, I think the Picatrix is a, a an interesting text because it's it's you know it ranges from the sort of highest divine kind of magic right down to the sort of the sort of sorcery or the you know the kind of spell making you know it's it's it, it kind of seems to sort of muddle all these different sort of levels of magic up together. But I think the problem for most modern people is that 
they haven't been taught or shown or led to have any kind of symbolic sense you know like Jung would say you know that that sort of um, ability just to see symbolically and it would have been second nature for the medieval renaissance magicians to speak in symbols you know I mean and the whole esoteric tradition is based on symbols I think Pythagoras I think the Neoplatonists love Pythagoras because he spoke symbolically and um, presented his his mysterious deep wisdom through symbols so if you think of all the alchemical texts um, yes all the astrological images all the talismanic images they are some of them are obviously cruder than others but they speak through this symbolic association and you'd have to you'd have to probably know the correspondences you know to know the associations so that's why a lot of it is so opaque right. to us today because we've no longer know the correspondences and there's a whole language of correspondences to do with qualities um, that relate to each other so I expect you know you've heard of the, the idea of the medieval sort of chain of being you know that was um, so every archetype if you like um, had a whole series of qualities that were associated with it in the natural world and in the human world, the animal world, the plant kingdom, the herbal realm, so that you would you would know that if you were working with a lion, say, you know, you'd be working with the archetype of the sun or the king or Apollo or so this 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 whole language is now lost to us. So a lot of these images just seem very incomprehensible. Do you feel as though through uh, contemplative work and really sitting with these um, images that their, their meanings could come through to the pe- practitioner or do you feel that they are truly lost? I, I think it's, it, it, it's um, uh, well, there's lots of different factors. I think if you're going to try to um, enter into a particular discipline like medieval astrology, or alchemy, or Kabbalah, then you've got to learn the language. Sure. You know that it's simply that you have to learn the language. I think um, with certain other great paintings, like great music, you know, you can be intensely moved and not necessarily know the theory behind why you're moved or what's being revealed to you. So again, it's helpful to know if you're looking at 15th century painting, you know, to know the language of of, of what might have informed it, um, I, I think. It, I think the problem is that we've lost the language, you know, and we've lost the ability to learn it. And the idea that viewing the world symbolically might lead to a kind of knowledge that's qualitatively different from, from what we regard as knowledge today, in terms of the truth of scientific materialism, is. It is so lost to us now. I mean, I'm very, very interested in a, a writer called Ian McGilchrist, who you might have come across, who's written a book called The Master and His Emissary, um, where he talks about, um, he, he's a neuroscientist, but he, he starts off with the idea of the two, the two sides of the brain being metaphors, really, for um, this more sort of broader, imaginal um, intuitive knowledge and our and our rational minds and how we've got the balance completely wrong in the sense that 
um, in a healthy functioning mind or brain, this deep intuitive sense of connectedness between all things is actually primary and our rational mind of analysis comes out of that. So in, in his view, you know, the symbolic sense is actually primary and it's the symbolic sense that allows us to enter into the domains of, of religion and art, spirituality. Um, but somehow we've got completely upside down now. We're in this sort of inversion where all those realms are regarded as somehow fantasy and not true, you know, so in our rational mind is sort of taken over as the truth. So we're not trained, we're not, we're not um, given the opportunity to develop. It's like, yes, as you say, like the organ, it's an organ which hasn't been developed, it's a faculty which hasn't been developed. And it has to be developed, I think, if we can, to be able to understand these symbolic images no, I was just going to say, we have to be sort of versed in the imagery of the time, as well as have a symbolic sense that it's meaningful, you know, and can actually reveal something. And perhaps um, also an awareness of the uh, doctrine of signatures as understood yes. in that period, you know, like the, <clears throat> excuse me, like the idea that the lion and the sunflower and gold are all connected by a hidden thread of an, uh, a shared essence. They may be varied in manifestation because they appear in different classes, but they are expressions of the same cause, causal essence that descends from the archetypal plane into the material plane. Uh, the Corpus Hermeticum is pretty clear about the methodology by which we uh, re-engage with the imaginal, I think, and it states that you have it's interesting because it it parallels um the buddhist i think approach which is you have to uh, withdraw from the sense senses of the body and turn that function inward toward the uh, noetic or the immaterial and uh, gradually by stages of purification the interior eye is awakened and becomes able to perceive the 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 imaginal the interior realm and um, I think part of the issue we have in, in modern and regrettably postmodern culture is that there is this confusion between, like when you say interior, when you say inner, uh, people just think that means their own, their thoughts and fantasies, their feelings. Yeah. And they don't realize that inner or interior means so much more. It means an actual... Uh, a realm that truly exists of spiritual creatures and um, that even has, you could say its own tides. And I think that work such as work you've done and other scholars we've mentioned and had on in the past is excellent because it is helping to restore um, an awareness of this important idea that, that interiority is more than just, a sort of existential um, isolation that leads one to an intimacy with their own personal feelings and thoughts and philosophical perspectives. This is more than just philosophical or intellectual, but rather it is, uh, it is really, the aim is really direct experience, is it not? Yes, and I think the problem is it's it's just become reduced to you know what people call just su just subjective or just personal, um, instead of 
the idea that it's it is intensely personal obviously people's experiences are intensely personal but it's more participative you know that it's it's the reason it's it's personal is because it is um unique experiences are unique but when the symbolic attitude is opened as it were that personal unique experience suddenly is is revealed to be resonating with something more universal and then it ceases to be just my personal unique you know subjective thing it becomes my particular window into the archetypal or my particular my particular channel into seeing something in a much larger context or seeing um yeah the bigger picture whatever it may be so you know again it's that split it's that 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 cartesian split that we've been suffering for the past what three or four hundred years which has been cut. I think I remember somebody saying, you know, it's like the telephone wires have been cut between us and the gods. You know, in restoring those telephone wires means restoring the power of the symbol because that's, that's the continuity. That's what opens up the purely personal to the universal, which is, of course, what alchemy is all about as well. So, um, yeah, I think that without that, you're just, again, you're just stuck between my personal experience and something out there which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with me and these these great systems of astrology and alchemy and kabbalah you know are designed to help heal that split and i think i discovered that you know when i was really quite young and um that's why i've sort of felt the importance of of restoring this restoring this in in, in some kind of way and of course, when, you know, with students, having worked with students for the past 20 years, once they're given permission to locate the personal within the universal, it's like they're, they're freed. You know, it's like there's a liberation. There's a kind of, wow, you know, we're actually allowed to write about our personal stories in terms of a myth or something, you know, which immediately opens up greater meaning. It's, it's, been, it's been absolutely wonderful, you know, to kind of actually see in action this this movement happen, you know, once, once the symbolic becomes part of a way of seeing, a way of thinking, a way of knowing, a way of writing. I imagine it's a challenge in the academic world to uh, try to balance it out a little bit more. Like you were saying, we are very heavy on one side in the, in the empirical side of things, uh, the scientific materialism, um, and we, we came to a similar conclusion when we talked to Dr. Aaron Cheek, oh, I don't know, maybe six months ago, that even with alchemy, there's this tendency of people to look at it too empirically. And then there's this other extreme where it's totally spiritual. And I think, yeah, we need to strike that balance to get the most clear view of, of reality. Um, just as there is a danger in being uh, severing the ties with divinity by being too analytical and empirical do you feel as though there's a danger on to go too extreme to the other end oh yeah absolutely um and that reminds me again of of um jeffrey kripal's work where he he talks about um a third moving to a third classroom space which we found a very very helpful kind of um metaphor you know that there's a, a first classroom which is a classroom of faith where you know well you know you'll find a lot of 
perhaps more new age type of material working within a kind of context that you know this is just absolutely true but we're not going to kind of look any deeper than just having a sort of faith in its truthfulness and you'll find a lot of religious religious texts and fundamentalist religious movements you know in this classroom of faith where they don't look particularly deeply behind what they believe and then there's the classroom of doubt or skepticism which is the basically the 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 post-enlightenment classroom where everything is subject to criticism and critical analysis and um dissection um uh which is not 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 obviously not a bad thing and it is is a wonderful tool um that we have but there needs to be a third place you know where um and this reminds me a bit of, of what Ficino was saying in the 15th century where he was saying you know philosophers must become um priests and priests must become philosophers you know there, there needs to be a movement to a third space where both these elements of sort of heartfelt intuitive sense sense plus um you know critical rational um clarity and discernment need to be brought together um, and I think it is possible and I think the very best academic writers do this and they do bring this together but it does take you know quite an effort I think and I, I think it's it's it ha- it takes a risk um, you 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 need to become vulnerable you need to be able to risk exposing yourself um, and not that many academics, I think, in this area have done this. I mean, understandably, because, you know, in the academic world, all these things have been out of favour and regarded as superstitious for such a long time. But just to be- begin to bring Western esotericism and its ideas back into the academy, you know, it's been a huge, a huge task. But yes, I think it, the third, this third place, this third ground where I think Kripal calls it the, the Gnostic classroom, you know, where people can start asking questions about anything and um, opening up to this mysterious other in a very um, authentic kind of way. You know, it's, it's, it's quite exciting, I think, the possibilities now. So having said that on the academic side, I'm curious how you employ the imaginal faculties personally when you are doing um, astrology, which is, which is a little bit more, there's a little bit more, uh, it's less scientific. That's for sure. Although people do try to turn it into a hard science in some areas, which is funny. I do. Yes. Well, when I'm doing astrology, I'm, I'm not, I certainly, I wouldn't call myself psychic in any sense whatsoever. I, I simply interpret the symbols. So I guess I've just been immersed really for the past 30 years or so in um, astrological symbolism. And I simply read the symbols and use my intuition. That's all I could really sort of say. Um, I certainly don't practice in any kind of deterministic way. And I, I, I'm quite convinced that um, systems of divination like astrology and tarot are not fundamentally deterministic. They've become deterministic through certain methods of practice and certain historical currents, particularly through a sort of Aristotelian view 
of a mechanistic cosmos. But in essence, they are divinatory. In other words, they are in the moment and they are of the moment. And they are they partake of you and the client and the symbol and the meaning that arises in that moment. Uh, my colleague Jeffrey Cornelius, who I've worked with for a very long time, they will often say, um, you know, the symbol is only a symbol in the moment that it's seen as a symbol. You know, an omen is only an omen when it's seen as an omen in that moment. Somebody else seeing it in another moment, it's not an omen at all. You know, so there's this sense of a kind of living presence to and symbolic, a symbolic interpretation. And that's how I would understand practicing astrology, you know, that, that there's something that comes alive for people once they start making that association, say, between, you know, their, I don't know, Mars in the 10th house and their boss or something. Once that association is made, it's like you can, you can start moving and start opening and meanings appear and solutions appear. And, but it's never fixed you know, and it's never determined and um, constantly open to negotiation in a way. I think what I hear you saying here too is that it, it becomes dynamic rather than static. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. It's a dynamic. That's my ex- It's a dynamic kind of process. Yeah, that's my experience too. It, 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 um, the symbols come alive and start to speak and you engage with them in this interplay and there's a flow of consciousness that occurs that animates everything. And um, it's only, it, there's a conversation, there's animation flowing, there's movement, there's mind. And that's a beautiful, I love how you, you know, you, you, you sort of uh, emphasize the immediacy of that. Yeah. I think it's a seeing, you know, it's, it's, um, it is that, that 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 ability to to flip into the into the symbolic seeing, you know. People who come just say, "Well, you know, will I meet the love of my life in the next year or something?" And they just want a concrete yes or no answer <laughs> and are not prepared to to move in that way. You know, you just you, you're completely stuck. I mean, you know, there's this, there's there's no way of working with that. You have to enter into the the game, the play, the 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 narrative of these. The mythological narrative, even of the of the symbol, and then in that sense, the the whether you're using tarot or astrology or um, you know perhaps throwing dice or whatever you're using, um, it's interesting because there's the subject of the reading and there's the reader. So there's there's this dynamic interplay between subject and object, and then there's the then there's the the system you're using, which becomes daimonic in a sense because it is a it is a medial principle that unites the reader and the subject of the reading together, and and so it it functions in this axial manner, which I find intriguing. Yes, I mean I suppose you could say that you know the chart itself, or like the tarot card, or whatever it may be becomes the daimonic intelligence you know I'm, I'm sure some occultists would say that that's when the sort of the spirit sort of enters the the reading or enters the image or enters i mean you, you do sometimes have those sort of spine spine tingling moments where you find yourself saying something that's utterly true that you had actually no idea um of, the, of that particular you know element of someone's life or and you feel gosh where did that come from you know so I think it's the, the image or the symbol, whatever, whatever you're using, as we were saying before, you know, it is, it is that, the power of that symbol which allows the imagination to, 
open to this higher place this 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 other this other kind of different kind of imagination where you which is linked to the universal you know and that's then and then that gives you access to something that you wouldn't have if you're just simply you know trying to discuss things without having that symbolic opening available so i think that's that's one of the powers of, of, of divinatory systems and i think it's it's just it's so tragic you know that what the world needs most is opening to these kind of meanings and yet something like astrology is it, it's probably scapegoated as the worst you know so anti-intellectual superstitious um thing and it's what actually could help people resolve so much conflict what's interesting to me too is um you know for instance in the tarot you have even a card that's called the world and um you know if you look at the tarot as a complete system you sort of have a, a symbolic depiction of the anima mundi and certainly in astrology you have the same i mean astrology is entirely based on the movement of the different um pieces i hate to use that word but pieces of the cosmos as, as a whole and so perhaps what's happening is um in those moments of intuitive uh illumination where where we're we're forming a uh, temporary sort of link with the anima mundi or the world soul and that enables us to tap into the prophetic function of 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 the um of that world soul of that of that noose which informs everything and sets it all into motion well that would certainly be a, a kind of neoplatonic interpretation um, of what's happening. Of course, I mean, people like Jung would say you're tapping into a sort of collective unconscious, perhaps, whatever it is, whatever it is, you know, there's, there's seems to be a kind of sense of a, a sort of great universal mind that we are um, little, little particles of, you know, and that part of us can tap into it, but there's a, a, a lot, lot, a lot of us that can't, but, and most of the time we're sort of, you know, we're too stuck in our material world and bodies and senses or whatever to be able to do that. So whether you call it the unconscious, whether you call it the universal mind, whether you call it the soul of the world, you know, these are all descriptions of something that we have glimpses of, but most of the time, you know, don't access. We haven't have epiphanies of, of being part of it and opening to it, but um, most of the time we're shut off from it, I think, unless we are obviously on, a, on, you know, on a, some spiritual path. But our, our whole culture, our, as our culture as a whole, is split off. Well, and, and I'm actually kind of, even though it's a sad thing, I'm glad you mentioned that because even when you're on a spiritual path, those moments of connection with the divine or with the holy or with the sacred or with the numinous or with the daimonic even um, there's a twofold. And I think, I think uh, Plotinus really seemed to understand this. There's a twofold aspect to it because the revelation, the revelatory quality of the connection of the contact is a beautiful experience is a wonderful thing. But then when you have to, withdraw from that or when it withdraws from you and you have to turn your face back toward the changing world of shifting appearances there's a sort of there's a sort of melancholy that's attendant upon that 
upon that awareness that that contact can only be temporary while we're in this place. Yeah. <laughs> and it, Absolutely. Yeah. But then we, we could speak of the fully embodied nature that is a, another paradigm where the absolute and phenomenal are actually superimposed on one another. And there is not such a separation or a clear barrier between the two worlds. Um, when we can engage in the, the non-dual aspect of of our mind and in relation to reality, I think that's another way to look at it where maybe it doesn't have to be as depressing. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I think a lot of it is probably due to individual temperaments to, sure. you know, a kind of, um, um, who was it? Oh, yes, there was an author called um, Rawlinson who, 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 wrote about four different um modes of of spirituality and there's i think he called there was hot structured cool structured hot unstructured and cool un, cool structured you know and that people tended to sort of verge towards these different modes of of experiencing their you know, spirituality and i think for particularly for hot structured people you know a kind of um um a sort of platonic sort of ritual kind of way of understanding the world which is very quite fiery you know quite passionate can then be prone to 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 the downs of melancholy you know it can become quite extreme whereas a sort of more of a sort of cool unstructured mode more of a sort of non-dual maybe eastern mode you know tends to be able to accept things in a much more kind of perhaps more sort of um calm and neutral way so i think I think we all have different different ways of, of coping or, or sort of, you know, dealing with um, this other according to our individual temperaments. I think that's that's part of it as well. That's very interesting. I wasn't aware of those. That, that who, who was it that you said? I think it was Andrew Rawlinson. Um, and I can't remember the title of his book at the moment, but I can certainly let you know. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. So I think we've covered almost everything, if not everything, which is always a surprise, but (laughs) (laughs) we did cover a lot of ground. Um, I think we are maybe getting close to, to wrapping up. Um, Janice, do you have any, anything that you wanted to add that we had not covered that you wanted to, since we have Angela here, take advantage. Um, The last things, the last point that was just made, made me think of, um, John Dowland, who is, you know, one of my all-time favorite composers ever. Uh, I mean, yes. just, I feel like, you know, unsung genius. Um, but I think that um, his piece, probably his most well-known piece, you know, Flow of My Tears or Lacrima Antique, Antiqua, yeah. um, although it's, you know, technically a lament over uh, perhaps the alienation of, you know, alienation from a beloved or from favor in the court. I think um, esoterically that piece of music really represents the lament of the soul that's descended into incarnation and has become alienated from, um, you know, communion with the one. And it kind of, uh, for me, it kind of uh, encapsulates what we were discussing from more of the melancholic temperament, which I think you see that melancholic temperament reflected in um, Gnosticism, for instance, where you might see the more sanguine, uh, you know, uh, Jupiterian orientation reflected in Neoplatonism. And then, and the, oh, gosh, yes. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've actually I've written an essay about um, Dowland and melancholy and the sort of spiritual path. I mean, I absolutely agree with you. Dowland's Lacrimé was one of the pieces of music that um, has had the most profound effect on me. And uh, I, no, I used to be a viol player, so I I, I used to play it a lot. And um, it is one of those extraordinary pieces that is, I believe, totally hermetic and informed by by the ascent and descent of the soul through the spheres. And, yeah, for me personally, playing that piece and arriving at the final, the final tier, as it were, has been one of the most sublime experiences of my life and also the most profoundly melancholic. Um, as has the performance many years ago now that we did of a... Um, a recreation of Ficino's um, Orphic hymn singing called Secrets of the Heavens, where um, we improvised or semi-improvised music to the Orphic hymns through the planets from the moon to Saturn. Um, that, that has also been probably one of the most powerful experiences of my life. So I think for me, it's, it's definitely been music that has allowed this this shift to be made you know that, that's kind of opened things up um and i think you know composers such as dowland composers like monteverdi he's another extraordinary um uh what would you say daimonic composer i Absolutely. guess in the sense yeah. of um and the great art of that period you know it, it's just yeah, it is just full of of power if we have the eyes and the ears to to discern it. It seems as though there's these periodical eruptions into history of something which is extra historical and divine that infuses the human world with a with this with this burst of inspiration. Because I see it, I see it very clearly in that time. I mean, you know, that if if you look at that, if you look at the the period called the Renaissance. I mean, the amount of inspiration that was flowing during that time is remarkable, and it was in every discipline. And it could be said that perhaps that was a result of the discovery of the Corpus Hermeticum and the translation of it. Uh, it may be a spiritual sort of uh, uh, energy or life force entered into human culture at that point and reinvigorated it. And you see it again about 100 years ago, 150 years ago, uh, with you know the occult revival and you know the the, mm. the symbolist and decadence and fin de siècle and you know you have Eric Satie composing Rosicrucian music and it, it was is a really interesting thing and I'm hoping that we are on the cusp of or you know uh, we'll be receiving another infusion um, soon. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I I think. I'm, I'm optimistic, you know, I think there are a lot of new movements now that are wanting to be very holistic, syncretic, wanting to look back to the past, but also moving into the future. Um, holistic science, for example, um, this great need now to try and bring together sort of mystical experience with, with science. Books like McGilchrist's, which are, I think, absolutely groundbreaking um yeah I'm, I'm optimistic that there will be um but i think it's going to be outside the academies i mean i i can't 
see now that um, you know we're in the right. We're, we've we've got the, we have the facility to to bring this back into any kind of mainstream um, culture. You know, I think there are lots of groups springing up outside the universities which will form a kind of counter countercultural renewal. And that's the best we can hope for. And I think, um, well, I know many people that are starting up, you know, their own little initiatives, their own schools, their own courses. And I can, I can feel and sense a network kind of growing, um, which hopefully we will also you know, become part of now. Um, so, yeah, I hope that it's, it's, it's going to happen. Um, <clears throat> to switch gears, I, I did want to throw out one more point here. Um, that I think bears some attention. There's a lot of enthusiasm for return to engagement with uh, the ancient gods and with the um, archaic and late antique worldview. And I think a big hole in um, the common understanding of how to engage with the divine is is the is the role of the daimonic in that engagement because. I think in antiquity it was it was more widely understood that the the god the the god doesn't descend to the invocation or the sacrifices. It's the daimons that link us to the deity, and the daimons w- who, in participating in the character of the deity, um, possess characteristics and uh, you know are clothed in symbols that reflect that deity. And I think that the, the role of the daimonic in relationship to the divine and to the to the numinous and bringing the numina to the practitioner worshiper, the invoker, is is uh, misunderstood or neglected or not known in modernity. And um, I just think that's really important. You know, if you're if you're invoking Zeus, for instance, Zeus isn't. I mean, except perhaps in rare cases Zeus isn't necessarily going to <coughs> descend yeah. from the cosmic level to I mean it might destroy us if he did like like in the myth where um oh what myth I, I'm sorry it's not Leto the myth where uh, he is asked to reveal himself and you know he grants a wish and to to his lover and you know she's told to ask him to reveal his true nature and then it and you know then he's she's incinerated by by it because of the magnitude of his power well i guess that's you know it's partly due to our sort of christian legacy that we've that we have we don't have these intermediaries apart from i I guess in the christian culture you know there are the saints and, and the angels and so on but um yes i think it's 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 all too easy to have a, some kind of numinous experience and think that is God, you know, or that that is. Whereas, obviously, the language of the, the Neoplatonic language of the degrees of daimonic intelligence that one might engage with, a lot more sensible in a way, you know, it's a lot more realistic to to feel that we we might just be connecting with something a little little higher up the ladder than we are. But yes, the likelihood of it being the ultimate one itself is 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 probably not not very likely so i agree that you know the whole language of the daimonic has been it's been misunderstood because it's it's interpreted as demonic you know, and that's that's part of the the problem um and it's very beautiful i think that's another 
it's very poetic and I think you know we we need to restore the, the, the sense of the poetic metaphor of, of, of these these ways of thinking you know that they are poetic narratives which have truth you know they're metaphors that have a have a truth they're not they're not like doctrines they're not rigid doctrines to say I believe this and not that they're like opening up a language in which, in which one can begin to talk about this sense that we have of being connected to something larger than ourselves. But then they can never be ultimate, you know, and, and they can never, only ever be stories. And, and I think to kind of restore the poetic is, is perhaps one of the most important things we can do, you know, that there's a truth in a sort of, there's a truth in a metaphor, there's a truth in any of these kind of, um, these these pre-modern worldviews where there was no split between metaphor and truth, you know, where, where there was this united sort of sense of what Plato would call, you know, a likely story that has a truth to it and be told in different ways. Um, and that we need to be more educated to to understand the importance of this, you know. And of course, we're, we're just not, our, our education system doesn't, doesn't, to do that at all so um yeah opening up the, the the power of the poetic narrative the poetic metaphor and, and the truth of it in all these sort of spiritual matters and, and imaginal matters i think is vital it's vital to to the, for the world today very nicely said and going back to the imaginal i believe that could be maybe the missing puzzle piece for a lot of people to connect these two these two worlds um and and maybe make more of a holistic holistic balance yes absolutely yeah um i mean corba himself i think is quite difficult to read i think he's you know he's quite dense he's not it's not easy for 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 anyone just to pick up and read and make sense of but i think um taking that idea of the imaginal as being the the space in which all these things happen. I mean, one, I think one thing that everybody can experience and begin to work with are their dreams, you know, and um, as soon as you start taking a dream image and working with it and dialoguing with it and speaking to it and it becomes alive and it takes you into that place and everyone can do that. And that's a possible way in for people. Oh yeah, I just I was just was kind of echoing what was already being said in that um I think that by doing so we can participate in a reenchantment of the world and um it did occur to me as Angela was saying uh her last couple of statements that when we are participating in this this sort of reenchantment of the world and we are engaging in a sort of demiurgy uh, we make contact with the divine, but then we turn. When we turn toward the world, then we can infuse the world with the with the life of that div- that div- that divine life with the noumena, and uh, in that sense, then we become daimon, and we turn back toward the divine to reconnect to you know hopefully re- re-engage with the divine. Then we become angelic because we're participating in an in an ascent toward toward the one and so there's this sort of angelic and demonic daimonic interplay where we where we engage with the one and then we turn back toward the world and we 
infuse the world with this miraculous, with this mysterious, with this with this noumena, and thus we uh, express our daimonic nature, and hopefully, hopefully in doing so, make the world healthier, happier, more beautiful, more you know, help others to see the implicit, imminent light that is contained within all things. Yes, I think that's all we can do, you know, through our different talents and our different vocations, our different paths. Um, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, uh, Dr. Voss, thank you very much for being an ambassador for these daimonic ideas. Um, I think you've certainly done your part today um, to help inform our listeners as well as us to maybe um, some of these uh, very important lessons. Um, Is there anything you'd like to end with um, for the audience? Um, Well, just to say really, if anyone, if anyone would like to um, get in touch with me, I'm very happy with them too. I can um, certainly send out my, email address or whatever um if anyone wants to know a bit more about anything that i've written or the courses that are that we've been running or be on our mailing list for future projects then you know i'd be very happy to be, be in contact with them um and it's just been a great pleasure to to talk about these things with you so thank you yeah it's our pleasure and um i would highly recommend the listeners go to academia.edu and you've got uh, a plethora of papers that you've written and they're all extremely fascinating and well worth everyone's time to to read. I think it would uh, highly enrich anyone's path. So thank you uh, you again for coming on. Well, thank you both. It's been a great pleasure. Yeah, we're so glad you decided to come on and discuss things with us today. It was really wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure. Okay, that concludes our interview with the respected scholar Angela Voss. It was a true pleasure to have her on the show to discuss the daimonic imagination. We're deeply grateful for her appearance on the Magician on the Fool podcast, and it was great fun exploring these different avenues and dimensions of daimons and their effects and their interactions with the both the imaginal realm and the physical realm the interpenetration of both realms was sort of an underlying theme i think as well including the way that the um immaterial intelligences influence uh the creative arts uh, i'm grateful for this opportunity to have discussed these ideas with her and she was an engaging and and fun person to discuss as i have said already and uh, i personally am grateful for this one yeah i'm really happy with it and it's funny because we these topics have been kind of our interest from the beginning we've been talking about the daimones the the power of symbols um I, i think this matches up nicely with our talk uh, we had with Angel Millar not too long ago, Um, just this emphasis on images, symbols, the imagination, the magical worldview, um, art, how it all fits together, and how we can uh, integrate this into 
modern day life rather than looking at it as a dusty relic on the bookshelf. There's a saying in the Golden Dawn, uh, for by names and images are all powers awakened and reawakened. It kind of brings it to mind for me um, because the names and images are in a sense daimonic because they occupy a medial place, a liminal uh, orientation where they link the uh, different worlds, consciousness. And it also brings to mind the Yunges, Sinoches, and Teletarchi of the Chaldean oracles, um, which of course are different types of daimonis, uh, which do link the uh, different strata of the immaterial and material cosmos in the process of theurgic cosmosis. Yes, good points. Um, and I would highly recommend, like I mentioned in the episode, that people go and check out her papers on academia.edu. So for our book re- for our book review this episode, I am going to be briefly reviewing a reissue of a book that came out many years ago, uh, privately printed and distributed primarily among uh, members of the Gnostic Church. It is called The Mystery and Magic of the Eucharist by Stefan Heller, the patriarch of the Ecclesia Gnostica. Stefan is the senior lineage holder of the English Gnostic transmission in the United States of America. He is um, a Gnostic bishop of several decades of experience who was originally initiated uh, and consecrated by the legendary Richard Duke de Palatine of blessed memory. This book is an esoteric manual on the practice of the Eucharist and the sacraments. Um, It does have a Gnostic perspective. However, I would actually say that it has an esoteric Christian approach to these mysteries. It's excellent. Um, It goes through each of the sacraments, describing uh, planetary associations, three levels of interpretation. Um, It has diagrams, a glossary. It's really an invaluable handbook for the um, independent sacramentalist, the esoteric Christian, uh, as well as people who are open to understanding how the sacramental mysteries are actually a form of ceremonial magic. It's primarily useful for that. So I would recommend this small but valuable manual to people interested in Gnosticism, esoteric Christianity, the independent sacramental movement, Rosicrucian theurgy, and uh, other related streams such as, um, you know, Martinism. As far as I'm concerned, I'm going to be using this uh, with my teaching materials moving forward in the future. I rejoice at the at this new edited version of it it's just truly it's truly an invaluable resource and it has stefan's it's illustrated by wonderful images and it contains as usual stefan's incisive uh intellectual acumen as well as his wonderful wit at times so i couldn't recommend it enough and the name once again uh, it is called The Mystery and Magic of the Eucharist, the revised edition. It recently came out. It's available on Amazon.com for a very reasonable price. I definitely strongly recommend it. 
Awesome. Yeah, I'm going to definitely be picking it up. Um, cool. Thank you. That's That was an awesome review. My pleasure. Okay, so this is it for the episode. As always, you can check us out on Facebook, YouTube, find us on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. And give us a rating, give us a review if you would like. We would appreciate it. And if you see Dominic in public, give him a punch in the face. Yeah, you could try. You could try. (laughs) All right. Well, that is a great way to end the show today. And so we will see you next time. All right. Have a good one.